0: Bible lists and this is from Wilmington's list Bible lists that he compiled put in a book and there's all kinds of different topics and I came across this one centurions and I thought hey that's an interesting list Um, and there are some I think 22 times in scripture that centurions are mentioned some of them are the same one but uh, they're they're always painted in a um, a positive light and I thought I would. just look at what the bible teaches on centurions there are five instances in scripture that i want to turn to because each one is important and each one tells a little bit of a story and the centurion uh basically here's just a sort of an artist's rendition of what they might have looked like in their uniform in their their battle uniforms now most often they didn't walk around in this they would have been much more uh, scaled down wouldn't be in battle but they were like the police force and military force of the Roman Empire. And a centurion, as the name implies, a century, as a hundred, they were um, most often officers that would have come up through the ranks of the enlisted, uh, or they were compelled, many of them, to be in the Roman army. And after about 15 to 20 years of service, they would be probably promoted to centurion and a centurion would be um, an officer over about a hundred men, and uh, if you had six hundred of those men, you made up a cohort, and if you had ten times that, you had a legion, so six thousand men made a legion, six hundred a cohort, and a hundred was a century, or led by a centurion, and We read of of the centurions, and you can see here a little bit of his armor. Um, he would have had some distinguishing uniform parts. Sometimes the, the feathering on the on the helmet, and others that would have distinguished him as the leader. And they were uh, chiefly organized, you know, men that would discipline the ranks to make sure they kept in order and fought. and and kept the peace, and they gave orders, and they were men of experience, and lots of that. You see in his right hand, he has a stick there, and that often was a very, like a dried out piece of grape vine, that, which is pretty hard and has some flexibility still to it. And they kept that not only as an emblem of authority, but as a discipline. Uh, kind of a measure of discipline if you somebody got out of line you could whack them with it you know and uh, get them in step and all that good stuff and so that might be what you would see if you were living back in the time of christ and the roman world and seeing a centurion out maybe marching with his men um, but more, most often they would have been familiar faces in a community as they were assigned to that area or whatever some of them became men of great men of great wealth had many servants and slaves Um, they would have had property some of them are mentioned like we're going to look at Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and he was a man of great wealth um, and others as well and so they were often men that were either appointed directly by the senators in Rome. So their senators would have appointments, like military appointments. We do that still today with academy appointments, right? If you go to the the West Point or the Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, this certain amount of our legislatures have... Uh, they can appoint a certain number to the academies every year, and that's quite competitive, but it's also somewhat political, too, as assignments. So there was politics mixed in. There were a lot of things there, but they were generally people that had uh, great experience in the military. And we know a little bit about the centurions from the Bible. Um, We don't know a whole lot about who they were exactly and all their background, but we do see uh, several instances where they were prominent in the Gospels and the story of Christ, and then later on in the book of Acts. And they would have been a familiar fixture in any part of the Roman world as you traveled it. Um, We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, that's the first instance, of it's also found in uh, Matthew's gospel, but in Luke chapter 7 you have an account here of a centurion. And that's the first one I want to look at. Luke chapter 7 verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one of whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he had already not, was not, Far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him I say to you I have not found such great faith not even in Israel and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Lord we are grateful for your word we're grateful for this account of this centurion and his servant and the Lord Jesus and all of that Lord and for the illustration it leaves for us in the Bible. And so we commit our study to you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Again, you come to this centurion who's mentioned and doesn't give us his name, probably somewhere out there in history or church, you know, church tradition, somebody's come up with a name for him, but I, I really think it's it's he's unnamed. But we do know what he was like, because he's described here, and we described where he was. Uh, he was in the village of Capernaum, and... Capernaum which is the village of Nahum that's literally what it means and that was that little fishing village that's on the uh, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and it would have been very familiar to Jesus in his day and it's here and when Jesus is near Capernaum that these servants of the man of this this uh, centurion come out and they go it's being sent out by him to plead with Jesus to come and heal his servant who was sick and there's a lot we can learn about this centurion I'm not going to dig into this as a whole sermon on just this one part but uh, again we know that he was a man that had authority he was a man who was wealthy because he built a synagogue for the Jews and by the way that synagogue which is pictured right there is the ruins of it is in Capernaum today you could go and visit that and that is the synagogue most likely that is mentioned in the gospels i say most likely because it was uh, added to and changed i think there was a church on there site one time and all that if i remember correct but uh, this would have been probably some of the original architecture that would have been there very hellenistic or greek in its um, look and feel it wasn't uh, something that you would see in the um, uh, in the jewish world that looked more you know fit for what they had done themselves but this man loved the nation of Israel. And I often think about that. Here's a man who loved the Jewish people, and yet he was a Gentile. And yet he was part of what the Jews looked at as, as an oppressor. You know, someone who had come and was part of the big system of Rome that had sort of in, imprisoned them in their own land. That's the way they looked at it. And most despised anything of Rome. But they were still there. And yet these people in Capernaum they go and they beg Jesus and they say he's deserving. And I find that interesting that the Jews that were present there said this man is deserving. And then when Jesus comes to the centurion, the centurion says he wasn't deserving. <laughs> and I think that's good that when others can tell you tell of you and say, hey, that's, that's a worthy person. Um, and we get that other person comes along, and when he comes and he says i 'm not that 's a good way to be you know humble of spirit, and we know a little bit about his character that that 's what he was like he didn 't want Jesus even to visit him at his house uh, because he said i 'm not worthy to have you in in your home and i 've thought about that myself, you know, like what is it that there isn 't really anything in us that 's worthy of the Lord in that way as in deserving of things, but yet over and over again in scripture, the Bible shows us that the lord does take note of even those who are outside of in this case i I think he was a believer he believed in god he believed that jesus was messiah um we don't know exactly where that transaction of faith took place but jesus says he hadn't found such great faith so he was a man of faith and you often wonder where did he where did he come into that you know um well i think he was a good missionary wherever he was in that sense i said missionary he he went and as he was there he no doubt he would have studied the culture of the jews and the religion of the jews and somewhere along the line he heard the word of god and he knew that there was a messiah coming and when he heard that he was in town he had a problem he had a need and he sent for him he sent for him and a lot could be said about that right and we read a little bit more about him but anyways there's this man the man who built the synagogue a centurion and again painted in a good light by jesus because when he says um when he heard these things he marveled at him and i i have to marvel at him too he's just like he doesn't fit the 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 image you might see of that first century roman soldier who was there and was sort of lording over the people that's often what we kind of see or would be depicted of movies of that time and whatnot but jesus as i say to you i have not found such great faith not even in israel and again it shows us that uh in uh in the scheme of things that jesus took note of gentiles as well even before Gentiles were really included in the plan they were always included in the plan but before uh, Gentiles um, the the gospel went out to them and all of that that would take place years later uh, after the crucifixion uh, a period of almost 10 years before the Gentiles really start to hear the word of God and do that and yet many Gentiles throughout the pages of scripture that believed and they believed on God both in the Old Testament and the New Testament the next uh the next centurion is the one who was in charge of the crucifixion think about that task for a moment part of your job as a dedicated soldier and a leader an officer of the ranks was to carry out the orders of those over you and in that first century world in the roman order of things and to keep order and civility they did a lot of crucifixions we read in Matthew 27, the account of Jesus and his trial and his, uh, his, his being brought before Pontius Pilate. Pilate couldn't find any reason to crucify Jesus, but at the behest of the people, he, he, he let Barabbas go, as we read here, and delivered Jesus to be crucified and that begins a story with the well named in scripture here anyways the roman soldiers that were in charge of handling jesus from here on now they also were there before this um, after jesus was arrested they were part of that but look what it says in verse 26 of matthew 27 then he released barabbas to them and when he had scourged jesus he delivered him to be crucified now Who scourged Jesus? It would have been Roman soldiers tasked with that. They would have been those that would have most likely been part of this whole process that would eventually end up at Calvary, at Golgotha, and they would crucify Jesus. And there was a centurion who was present overseeing all of this. He would have seen the beatings of Jesus, the scourging. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Now that garrison would have been the men under the control of that, or the authority of that centurion. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. You, you see the mocking that's going on. They're cruelly treating Jesus. And they're, it's part of the humiliation process. This centurion would have, well... He was complicit with it because they were men under his authority. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Again, I think of that centurion who would have been there as he watched his men twist these thorns together And make a crown and mock Jesus. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him. Put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. All part of the process, right? Verse 37. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They were tasked with that. Think about that. Uh, I think as those men were tasked with doing that and putting that up, um, again, that was his accusation, and they had to put that up. They put it up there uh, in, in the languages of the people so they could see it. And as they did so, uh, little did they know that that accusation was 100% true. Absolutely, he was king of the Jews. Not only king of the Jews, but king of king of the universe. Verse 39 And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Here's the crowd as they pass by. And those soldiers still there in the process. And saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. There's that phrase, son of God. It's important because as the crowd goes by and the Pharisees go by. That's the next phrase here the accusation is is thrown against him in a mocking way if you're truly the son of God and I think of that what is that centurion who's out there watching over his men making sure that the orders of Pilate are fulfilled and that he's doing his duty in this awful thing that had to be done something they've probably done many times over and he hears this conversation. He hears the mockings that are going. It's not really a conversation because Jesus isn't saying anything back. He's watching. And he's listening. And he's probably never seen a prisoner go to the cross like Jesus. Verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself. He cannot save if he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Truth is, Jesus said they wouldn't believe, not even if one rose again from the dead. And that is indeed true. Most of them would not believe even after the resurrection. Verse 44, Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Two men dying on either side and they revile against him. And we know from the account one eventually in faith looks to him and says lord remember me when you enter into your kingdom right he he believed but he was initially mocking just like the pharisees and the chief priests were and just like the roman soldiers were and the crowds were and everything else they were mocking always find it interesting that even men on their dying breath can mock god thankfully one of them knew who he was though and now from the 6th hour, that's noon, until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. Now think of that as your Roman soldier is tasked with this terrible event, and all of a sudden it becomes dark in the middle of the day. Not just for a few minutes or even a total eclipse. It's only um, really the fullness of that eclipse is only minutes. We're supposed to have one next year, Right. <laughs> Up in this region um, in April is it? and uh, already the hotels down at Holton and all that are just I guess sold out you know everybody's so um, if you're going to make money, wait, we're just out of the full, the full eclipse of it or whatever that's um, it, I, I don't know somewhere around probably Sear Plantation or so south to about Danforth is that swath that comes up and it'll be in the middle of the day completely black, well almost completely dark. It won't be completely black. But it, it's not an it's not a uni, it's a, uh, uncommon event just to have an eclipse. They're explained mathematically. But, you know, it's another thing to have three hours of darkness. Imagine that. Here's this centur- centurion going, whoa, something's not right here. By the way, when God the sun hung dying on a cross, the sun would not even shine. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that open up that psalm were the last words that Jesus would cry out, right? Or as he gave up the spirit. Verse 46, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was so gracious to give him the very word of God. For those present that would have known the Psalms, they would have said he's quoting Psalm 22. Some thought he was calling for Elias. (laughs) But those that would have heard it would have gone back. And what's that Psalm about? It's about the crucifixion. A thousand years before it would happen, David wrote that. Verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil in the temple, which was about, if I remember correct, some 70 feet high. And it was the width of a man's hand. It was made out of fine woven wool. And it would have taken hundreds just to pull it up into place, you know, on ropes and pulleys to get it up there. And this huge curtain, which separated the holy place the most holy place from uh the holy place where the once a year high priest would go in and offer a sacrifice for the atonement of its people of his people and also for himself at that very moment that that veil is torn the sound that it would have made would have been deafening in jerusalem History says the Jews after that went and sewed it back up. We know from the book of Hebrews that he's made a way into the Holy of Holies. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, right? He's our sin bearer. And there's no need to have a temple anymore. Or a tabernacle. Or a a place like an Ark of the Covenant. Or any of that. Because his blood is is enough his sacrifice was enough once for all this centurion and his men would have been listening to that and watching that and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised wow no there was a, a, a we often think about resurrections as not very common that's true they're not very common but in the time that jesus died people were raised from the dead and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many Luke makes that distinction and he, he clearly when Matthew I mean makes that di- distinction here and Matthew is writing to the Jews remember the Jews require a what? a sign the Jews required a sign and he gave him many 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 signs even though he said no sign would be given except <laughs> sign of the son of Jonah right? Or, or that sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the fish's belly three days, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days, right? And three nights. And uh, and I say that because he actually did give them many signs. That's his grace. That's all that is. That's his grace. He didn't have to. He didn't have to give one sign. But he did. And I don't think it was so much for the Jews. Because you read here in the next verse, verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This centurion was a man that had decades of experience, most likely, in a Roman army, had probably been into many battles, had had seen all kinds of things, and yet he feared greatly. (laughs) Wow. And he makes a tremendous statement, truly, this was the Son of God. The man believed. I, I don't know what that would have looked like. <laughs> I don't know. Here's one artist's depiction of that. Maybe he did, you know, pick up that thorny cross or that thorny crown, or maybe he watched that as his men did as they took the body back down off the cross. And his body would have been taken by um, his followers and brought to that tomb. And hastily buried. Before the sun went down. The centurion at the cross. I hope to meet him someday. Acts chapter 10 is another one. And um, I got to move along here. But this is the story of Cornelius. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. A centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. A devout man and one who feared God. I like that. Again a centurion painted in a positive light with all his household who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always he's the kind of guy you want around you know and this is the kind of character that he was and about the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him Cornelius and when he observed him he was afraid and said what is it lord and so he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. You think God hears prayers and takes note of those things? Absolutely. We sang, what a friend we have in Jesus tonight. And, you know, what needless pain we bear, right? When we don't carry it to the Lord in prayer, as, as the writer says there. But I thought about this here. The Lord took note of a prayer of a centurion named Cornelius. Verse 14, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. God's working in Cornelius, reveals to him that he was going to have someone come to him. And then over another location, he's revealing to Peter that he needs to go down and to find Cornelius. And it says here, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Because when he came to Cornelius, you remember that um, jews and gentiles they, they didn't get along uh, romans and jews didn't get along and yet here's a gentile and a roman a centurion and god's taken note of him and peter goes down to the man and preaches the gospel to him i, I love it it's the, it's a wonderful story but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him the word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all and it took Peter a little bit to, get through, under, to understand that that he's not just Lord of the Jews but Lord of all And by the way he's always been Lord of all from the very beginning he's God and yes he has a special plan for Israel but he had a plan for the whole world and all that that word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that, through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. What prophets is he talking about? The Old Testament prophets. And they were prophesying not only to Israel, but to the whole world. And Peter brings that in. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Big change in God's plan going on here. and I say change. Um, it, you have the gospel, which at this point in history of, from Pentecost, was primarily focused within the Jews and their nation and their scattered nation. And now it's going to the Gentiles. And now there'll be this movement to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13 is the Paul's being commissioned to go out with Barnabas and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and all of a sudden the rest of the book of Acts focuses on that realm not not exclusively it's still Jews and synagogues involved and all that then he goes on to say for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God and then Peter answered can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have now I will note right there is that the the question goes out can people be baptized in the water and what would basically hinder them from that and he you know what he doesn't ask that question but that's similar to the the thinking can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the holy spirit you receive the holy spirit at salvation and after that you're baptized and that's the pattern in scripture always and the pattern throughout the new testament or through the the church age as well Uh, belief followed by water baptism but spirit baptism occurs at salvation and the evidence that they were saved was that the holy spirit was poured out upon them and um, then they were baptized and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the lord then they all they asked him to stay a few days now that's the story of cornelius and i skipped around in that chapter but big chapter because the word of god goes to the gentiles and it begins with a centurion in his household. Think about that. And then Acts 21 is another centurion. <clears throat> and you know this, where the account of Paul coming back, ends up being arrested at Jerusalem. And um, he, is, he ends up getting basically um, in a fight. <laughs> Not on his choosing. He wasn't fighting back either, but a riot erupts now for the romans who were also the civil authorities they they understood that if there's a riot going on they need to deal with it and put it down and so they go in and they help paul it says and he immediately took soldiers and centurions plural and it means there was a lot of soldiers and ran down to them and when they saw the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating paul So here, maybe numerous centurions and soldiers stopped or intervened in the beating of Paul. And as they bound him with thongs, and they arrest him, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, here Paul plays his citizenship card, is what he does, because he hadn't done that, and there are other instances where he doesn't. But here, it's important he does because God has a plan for him he wants to convey him uh, eventually to go to Caesar in Rome but here Paul could have been scourged he was just to the these soldiers and the centurions just another Jew who's causing trouble and they were going to arrest him take care of him and all this and he says is it lawful for you to scourge a man because that's what they were going to do is scourge him because he's a Roman, or not because he's a Roman, but you know, a, a, he says, a man who is a Roman and uncondemned. And immediately they knew it wasn't lawful. And they can get in big trouble in doing that. And so there you have centurions again in a positive light. They intervene on behalf of Paul, and they're men that uh, were men uh, of the law. They didn't just do things like brute thugs that they could have done. And then the last centurion that is mentioned in um in scripture is julius and he's in acts 27 and we read there of this is after paul has been brought before like agrippa and felix and you know he's he's gone on and he's headed off to rome he appealed to caesar and in doing so set in motion a trial that had to go in rome and eventually under nero In around AD 64, 64, 65, Paul was beheaded at Rome. That's what uh, history says to us. And so he lost his appeal to Caesar. But nevertheless, he was going to go, and he was going to um, end up eventually going to Rome. And it would be quite a a journey in that. Acts 27.1, and when it was decided that we should sail to Italy... They delivered Paul, and by the way, it says that we should say, oh, that's Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He's including himself, as he had earlier back in Acts 16 or so, uh, included himself in the text, meaning that he was accompanying Paul. So Luke was there, firsthand account. They delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And... Uh, that that describe that we this name of the man so we know his name and the next day we landed at sidon and julius treated paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care so he here's paul who's a prisoner but the centurion says you're at liberty to go and to see your friends and he does he goes off the ship he goes and does that at sidon acts 27 6 there the centurion found an alexandrian ship Sailing to Italy. Now, an exal- Alexandrian ship was a grain ship. They were very big. The, the ships were, they could carry hundreds of men and tons and tons of grain or other cargo. Um, and they were the largest sailing vessels up until the 19th century, pretty much, believe it or not. Um, uh, the, somewhere in the 19th century, there they were vessels that were uh, regularly built. But as far as on the ocean at that time, they were huge vessels. I didn't realize that. I was doing some research on them. But it makes sense because there were 275, 276 prisoners or something, uh, if if I read that correct in this chapter. And then there was lots of goods as well. Anyways, they start off to Italy and kind of picture the Mediterranean, all right? And they're coming up along the coast of Lebanon, which is modern-day Lebanon, and they're going to follow that coastline up near nearer to the coastline, because this is taking place sometime after the day, of just shortly after the Day of Atonement. So think of it as in late October, okay? And the winter winds begin to pick up, just like they do in the Northern Hemisphere, right? And the Mediterranean becomes kind of a blustery place over the next months. And October is about the last that you can really sail on it and kind of have more peaceful waters. So things begin to go badly for them. And then in verse 10, it says, saying, Man, I perceive that this voyage, this is Paul, this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only um, of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So Paul warns them, okay? Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Now here, Paul says this prophetically, and the centurion's listening to Paul, but he's more persuaded by the ship owners verse 23 things go really bad and you can read through that chapter uh, they get into a storm and then they get into another storm and it's just bad it goes from bad to worse and there's a lot of fear and it says for there stood by me this is paul again speaking for there stood by me this night an angel of the god to whom i belong and whom i serve and he's speaking to the uh the sailors and to the prisoners and to the centurion Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul says to them, we're going to make it. And yet it's going to get worse. Okay, you read through it. Verse 25, therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. And you you read of this. They get into this storm that actually blows them out into the middle of the mediterranean and they're there for two weeks in this storm they haven't eaten anything you can imagine the seasickness of involved and these weren't sailors most of them on there imagine being packed in with over 200 people on on board and not no wonder you wouldn't eat you'd just be probably a wash and vomit but that that all goes on it was absolute deplorable conditions and eventually they end up on the shores of malta and it's there as they wash up on a sandbar and the ship begins to break apart and all of that and the sailors have already abandoned ship that the centurion or the soldiers who were with them wanted to kill the prisoners because they could escape, right? And that wouldn't be good. But the centurion intervenes and that's what it says in uh, verse 42. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, i like that he had listened to paul he had watched paul he had been with him on this last bit of the journey which was terrible it says kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land and then you read in acts 28 the uh they were, there they are on the shores of malta and the story there that was taking place as well and god delivered them all of them not one of them died just as the Lord had revealed to Paul. But I say that because you have these centurions that are mentioned. And we don't know the names of some of them. Here we do. This was Julius. was his name. And he understood that there are more powerful things than the, the ocean. Uh, you have the guy in Matthew's account and uh, Luke's account. Excuse me. Of, um, that he understood that there, were more, there was someone more powerful than any doctor. And he was walking among him. And then you have the one who was there at the crucifixion. And he also understood this truly was the son of God. He was God. His death was different than any other one he had ever seen. And his event, the event circumstances around that. And then, of course, those that, that intervened for him along the way. So centurions, I don't know, interesting list, some food for thought. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for all the details in the Bible. And Lord, thank you for these um, centurions that are mentioned, for they were part of your plan. And even tonight, as we study out your word, we're mindful that as we do our business and go about our duties, whatever they may be, you may indeed inject yourself right in the middle of them. So help us to be watching and waiting and doing your work first and foremost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.